Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Drumforge. Drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike. Founded on the idea that great drum sounds should be obtainable for everyone, we focus on your originality. Drumforge, it's your sound. And now your host, A.L. Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I'm A.L. Levy, and with me is our special guest, Ty Accord. Joey and Joel are actually filming some stuff for you guys, the listeners, that I think you're all going to love. So for the first time ever, I'm going solo on this one, raw dogging it. But so, yeah, me and Ty are here. Thanks for being here, dude. Yeah, no worries, man. It's good. Yeah, you know, just hanging out while uh, while they film some stuff. I'm really, really excited to have you on here because I, uh, I first heard about you through our mutual friend, Finn McKenty. Um, uh, yeah. yeah, he's like my best friend, and he's actually been on the show a number of times. I've worked with him a lot, and uh, we're really, really good friends. And he introduced me to your old band, Issues, like three years ago, and he was like, "This is, this is the shit. Um, uh-huh. There, this is going to actually go places. You need to check it out." And I checked it out, and I was like, "Wow!" Like, I was wondering when this was going to happen, when you were going to get actual musicians coming into the this style of heavy music but adding actual pop on top of it uh, like it's yeah. such an obvious thing to do that it surprised me why it didn't happen earlier so when i heard it i was like wow these guys like they understand something about music that the metal bands who try to sing clean courses don't get like they have actual melodies and actual chord progressions and it actually goes somewhere musically the way that you would hear on a pop record or on what I call real music. Um, <laughs> and so I was immediately impressed. And then I found out that you guys actually do know how to make real music, but you went to jazz school and uh, are an actual musician. So uh, I just wanted to uh, lead with that. So, I mean, I'm sure you've probably been asked this a bunch, but I'm sure you're going to say that studying formally made a big difference. Yeah. I mean, like, it's always an ongoing debate because, you know, some people are very passionate that you don't need it. Um, and some people are very passionate the opposite way. I think, you know, it's just not the same answer for everybody. I mean, me personally, it's something that I was interested in getting and learning and it helps me, but then some people don't need it. But yeah, just for me personally, I didn't want to ever listen to a song, any style of music and not know what was going on and not know how to recreate it. I completely agree. I come from a semi-schooled background, so I'm kind of on the side of schooling. However, I feel like I understand why some people are against it uh, in that I'm sure you've been, I'm sure you encountered this in music school, the dudes who would practice their scales all day long and then when they go to do something, it just sounds like what they were practicing, which is yes. scales all day long, or the or the guys who learned a little bit of theory or harmony, and uh, then when they go to write, all they're thinking of is in terms of options. Rather, you know, what yeah. options can I? What can I do here? Rather than feeling something and writing it, and then maybe when they go back to edit it, thinking, okay, what can I do to make this cooler? Like their first step is to go towards the theory and that ruins music in my opinion yeah so, definitely did you ever go through that phase um well I, I i mean 
not, not me personally. Like I, I noticed that too. And at first I didn't know how to put my finger on it. And I was like, what, what's different about how they're doing it? And like, what can I do to not ever do that? And that's basically <laughs> what it is. Like what you just described is like kind of just sitting from a very technical standpoint. And yeah, it is just all about feeling, but you know, me, it was always just like, I would feel a certain way or feel something and want to go somewhere. And if I didn't have the tools to get there, I would just get frustrated. So like that, that, mm-hmm. that is why, you know, I chose to learn it's, and I think, you know, running into like a lot of musicians and this and that, and especially people that don't um, know theory or use theory, just assume that everyone that is schooled is doing that. Like, Oh, you just go by the book and like by your brain and like, you don't go by your heart. It's like, nah, son, like I'm still writing from feeling and passion, but I just, want a bigger toolbox. I want a bigger vocabulary, but yeah. And then of course you can just take that to the extreme and only use your schooling and rules and like, think of it like what weird thing. I remember being in jazz school and there were those people that was like, what weird, crazy thing can I do at this part and this part? And this part? It's, like, <laughs> it's like, well, the whole song, what has the whole song sound? And uh, in my opinion right now, it sounds like shit. Well, what's the, what's this crazy thing you can do to evoke an emotion from the listener? I think that's way, in my opinion, that's way crazier than any theoretical thing that you can come up with. That's, that's like the real challenge. I went to Berkeley and uh, I don't know if you experienced this, but did you ever have those professors at your school who were like masters of the technical side and they would play their music and it was like maybe the most technically proficient shit on the planet, but God, like the worst music. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. And and it's funny because that exists in in very, and a a bunch of different parallels, Um, you know, especially with like, electronic music as well like people that are ableton certified and know every single routing yeah. possibility and can design any sound ever and then you listen to their ap and it's like what <laughs> you know what i mean absolutely um that reminds me of when when i first moved to florida to work with jason sukoff i had to learn pro tools because i i didn't know it before and um I decided to get a certification and I left after three days because it was like, what are we doing spending all this time on every single thing that the software can do? And in reality, I need to know like the 10 things it does best for this specific application. So we didn't do anything with editing drums in that certification, for instance. Like they didn't teach me like the best ways to use Beat Detective to, you know, to edit together a metal record or something. It was just like this file menu, this menu does this, this menu does this. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I feel like it's um, it's almost a distraction from doing the actually hard work. I feel like uh, when people spend way too much time on that stuff, it's almost I mean, I don't want to say that it doesn't take a lot of work to learn all that stuff. It does. And kudos to anyone who values learning. But um, I feel like it's a distraction from the actual hard work of like doing something that connects with people. Yeah, absolutely. So right now, are you doing more writing than production? Um, Well, yeah. So I'm doing, I guess, a combination of. Um, production and writing for other artists as well as kind of my project sort of I'm not going super hard on like my anything that's like my personal music yet I mean I'm doing remixes and releasing stuff here and there but I mainly just want to build like rapport and um, kind of get my feet wet and build relationships 
and kind of still just develop myself before I like go into the world as like, okay, I'm a ready to find artist, you know? So I've been doing some production for this guy, Matt Coma, this singer, Gallant, and um, some other people and just trying to get placements and things like that because I just feel like that is making me a better producer and this and that. So I just don't, you know, I don't want to like just start doing an album right now. You know what I mean? So that'll come later or whatever. But yeah, so basically what I'm doing is just getting in the rooms with a bunch of writers, a bunch of artists and like kind of working on their records and their albums right now. I think that that's actually really, really smart. Here's a, something that maybe you can help the, uh, the noobs out with because you know you touched on building rapport and building relationships and you know how in the music industry or entertainment industry people will always say network 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 you got a network you got a network but in reality for a lot of dudes who don't already have a career networking could mean going to nam and punishing <laughs> people with really lame business cards or just uh you know doing a really really bad job of networking it's not actually it's actually the opposite of networking it's punishing yeah do you have any suggestions for dudes who don't like say they didn't come from a really big band and then move into pop like which makes perfect sense say they're starting out and they want to build relationships do you have any suggestions for people at that level yeah um I, so I, I guess I've always had kind of a get in where you fit in mentality. And also just like when you meet people and meet important people is, you know, just knowing how to handle those situations and not becoming the punisher. Like my my whole um, start to the music industry, the whole reason I connected with Tyler um, and issues even formed uh, was because I moved down to California for an internship and I just um, started working at this label studio. Uh, it was a, it was Atlantic Records studio in Hollywood. And, you know, I was just like cleaning trash and things in that. And then that turned into an engineering position. And then like when I was engineering, I got studio time and connected with somebody that knew Tyler, this and that, whatever. But basically I just kind of like figured out any way to get into the industry and then kind of just like grew from there. And obviously that's going to be different for everybody's stories. But I think that, you know, reaching out to people, talking to people is never bad, whether it's like on the Internet or on the, at a show or whatever like that. But it's just going from there is 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 really, really, really the, the big pivotal part, because there's so many people that get in the room or get um, in a position uh, where they're talking with someone or showing somebody something and you know, it starts off great, but then it just goes to absolute crap because they're either way too overbearing or too desperate or very, very, very obviously just trying to get something out of someone. And I guess I just always had the mentality that like, if like they don't, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it, if you just treat them like a normal person, you just act like a normal person. And you know, it's, you're not always trying to just force yourself or force your stuff onto someone. Um, a lot of times people just naturally I guess, to put it very frankly, just like you better. They naturally want to ask you more questions. They naturally want to help you out and they naturally want to hang out with you. And you find yourself naturally invited to these whatever situations, whether it's a a party, a convention, I I don't know, a studio, whatever, invited into these these people's lives because you're just a chill dude and um, people want to um, work with you. And obviously 
if you work hard and get your music as good as it could possibly be and impress people, you know, obviously that takes you as well. But I've just seen so many people get to this point where it's like, oh, yeah, like I met this person and this person and then I called him 25 times and he never called me back. It's like, dude, <laughs> it's like, dude you got to just chill. You, you know, I think that the uh, have you ever heard that cliche about marketing that it takes seven times of seeing a product somewhere like on a billboard and then on TV before the average person decides to buy. I feel like oh, that principle could be applied to networking in that if you go into a meeting, like meeting someone, I don't mean like an actual plan meeting. If you go into meeting someone like at NAM or something with the idea that you're going to get a deal right then and there from this person, that is the wrong way to do it. All you should be hoping to do is to get handshakes exactly. and to meet someone so that maybe in a few months you meet them again and you remember each other. You had a cool conversation. And then all you do is say, hey, what's up? You know, cool meeting you again. Talk some more. And then over the course of time, it turns into a relationship and those relationships bear fruit. But I, I feel like people try to do things way too quickly. And, you know, for the dude who's in the middle of Idaho, this is probably depressing news. <sighs> but uh, I mean... Did you move to where the work was? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I mean, people, yeah, people tell me that all the time. It's like, well, what's going to happen where I am? It's like, dude, I was in that position as well. I like packed my bags, you know, I just, I just went, I mean, LA isn't the answer for everyone, you know, if, nope. but for what I wanted to do and what I wanted to get into, it was. So that's exactly what I did. I just went to where the work was. I, I feel like almost everybody I know who's done something has pack their bags at some point. I mean, we all know like the person who made it out of some podunk town and, but that, that's like, that's such an exception. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You don't, don't count on that <laughs> in, in my opinion. You know, w another thing I find interesting that kind of, I feel makes what we're talking about more true is at least from my experience, like when I've met people through quote unquote networking situations Typically, the things that bear fruit, bear fruit like a year later, like when not expected. It's like a year later and going to dinner at some point, like stopping through L.A. at some point, having dinner together, seeing them at a party, like all kinds of stuff that like leads up to suddenly they know what you do and they think you're cool. And someone else that did the same thing you do got sick or is on tour or is working with Janet Jackson on her comeback. I don't, I don't uh, know. Uh -huh. Like, that would be cool. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, something like that. And then your name uh, pops up. I've never really gotten anything out of hounding somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> people don't like to be hounded. And so many people I, I run into because I've just brushed shoulders with some pretty big names now just in random things. And every time I you know, th oh, this is my main producer, this guy or whatever. Every time I see a relationship built between like a superstar and like their people, it, the, the story is always the same. They were just really cool. We started hanging out. We just vibed. It's like you think, at least for me growing up, I think, oh, like only the very, very best guitar player is going to be in the room. Nope. It's like, no, this person was just the coolest guitar player. He was on time, didn't ha hound anyone and he was talented. So it's like, that's always how it happens. Yeah. And if he's awesome, then that helps, too. I mean, you can't I feel I you know, I feel like the skill part is just assumed like the when people are like, but this person who's so great, 
didn't get anywhere. This world's not fair. It's like, well, actually, the world is not supposed to be fair. The world just is what it is. And uh, your skill is not enough. Your skill actually at the highest levels is assumed. And for you don't have to be like an Olympic athlete, musician, you know, but you have to be pretty you have to be good enough to deliver what you're supposed to deliver. And uh, if you can't do that, then the conversation isn't even open to go to the next level. I, I think a lot of people get they get stuck at thinking that just the amount of time they put into actually getting good at music is enough, where it's kind of like saying that love is enough in a relationship <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> when we all know that it's not. So, all right. So you're, you're an engineer, you're a producer, and I know that you've worked with other guys like our friend Chris Crummett, who is amazing. Do you find it difficult to work with other producers, engineers on your projects, or do you take a different... Do you put on a different cap or do you work together? Like, how does that work? Because I know Chris is a strong-minded dude and he's a great engineer. Yeah, um, I, I think it's it's a combination of just, um, I mean, I, I, I my goal is always to work with someone. Like, I, I've you know, I've seen people and gotten in the rooms with people where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to run the show no matter what. My, my goal is always to find out how we can work together. And, you know, especially with Chris, there, it's a really good balance of his strengths versus my strengths versus, you know, uh, like just what he does and what I do. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I'm, you know, a confident producer in, in the way that I can, you know, shape sound, make beats, you know, key parts, things like that. And, you know, I can mix as well, but you know, say somebody who's dedicated their life to knowing how to get amazing drum sounds is Chris. I haven't. You know what I'm saying? Like, yep. like if I was if somebody held a gun to my head and said, look, you have to record this issues album. Like I could do my best and it would sound all right. But like somebody I, I just like taking the back seat to someone who really, really knows what they're doing in areas that I don't. And, you know, Chris is an expert and has, you know, basically my life's uh, span of experience in certain areas that I I just want him to shine on. And I, I don't know, it's very easy for me to just kind of let someone do what they do. Like, I, it's not easy for everyone, but it is for me. And like, you know, every time I work with a new person, I always try to find out where, where they're really good at and what I'm really good at and how we can work. Even if we're good at the same thing, sometimes it's cool to just see how they do it. But yeah, I don't know. I'm always like, collaborative minded and, and always try to find, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, certain th people I get in, I just, you know, we just don't click or whatever, but at least I try, you know, I actually totally back that mentality. Um, I was just watching Mark Cuban. Like he was on creative live with, a uh, with chase uh, Jarvis, the, the founder CEO. And I guess he was doing something called 30 days of genius where, Every day he would talk to somebody else who's done just amazing things. And anyways, Mark Cuban was on there and he was saying that his whole like MO towards working with people is find someone that's good at shit that I'm not that good at, which I, I think that's brilliant. And I've also done the same thing. Like when I had my band, I tried to be the worst musician in the room, like get, get the people that can do what I can't do. Like I'm not that great of a shredder. Get an amazing shredder right. or in in the studio i i'm okay at drum tuning for instance but i'm not 
I wouldn't call myself an expert. So I have a drum tech who's like uh, the listeners of this podcast know him, Matt Brown. He's incredible. Get someone like that to tune the drums. And then my drum productions sound great because uh, I didn't have an ego about tuning the drums. I, I feel like that's, you know, everybody, it's a common thing to say ego ruins things. But uh, I feel like sometimes that's just kind of thrown around. Like, what does that actually mean? And I feel like this is one area where we can actually say ego does ruin things because sometimes it is hard for some people to admit that dude is way better at this than I am. So I just have to accept that. Right. But I don't see what the problem yeah. is. And honestly, something that I also took on, a mentality that I took on pretty early on is, you know, a lot of people when they find somebody that's very obviously better than better than them at something, they kind of do a, a sort of shutout thing. Like they get they get uh, 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 threatened, and they're like, "Oh, like you know, whatever it is, denial, this and that." They're like, "Oh yeah, like they they just don't want to work with this person, or they or they try to tear down this person." But I always it's like, dude, you have to take it as an opportunity to learn because the only reason I'm good at any of the things that I'm good at is because I met somebody who was way better at them at one point in my life. And my immediate reaction was like, okay, cool. You do your thing. I'm going to watch every single move you do. And I'm going to ask you every question about it rather than have an ego because like, how the hell am I going to get any better? Where, how am I going to, how am I going to advance at all? If I just pretend like I'm good at this, it's like, I can always, always be better. And even if it's something that I'm super confident in, it's somebody really, really like shows me up. Obviously I'm going to be like, damn, I'm going to have my feelings hurt for a second. But then right after that, it's like, cool. How did you do that? Show me everything. Well, you know, I think that's important to note, like getting your feelings hurt for a second is almost an involuntary thing. Like you can't control it always. You can. The thing is, you can control how you react to it. I mean, like yeah. in music, especially people are sensitive and like, you know, we I feel like in a lot of lines of work, people don't define their personalities by their work like they don't uh, they don't have that attachment like someone who's an accountant might not like judge his self-worth on how well he calculated numbers <laughs> that day right i mean i'm sure there are some guys who do but like i'm just i was just throwing that out as an example not not every line of work there's that personal connection but in music audio, entertainment, creative fields, people who do this stuff, that's their identity. Like it or not, for better or for worse, it is what it is. And so getting offended or getting your feelings hurt when someone shows you up is a, a natural, involuntary thing. It happens, but we can control whether we act like bitches about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I think uh, the dudes who can um, handle it like... Uh, uh, thick-skinned individuals tend to tend to uh, stick around longer, in my experience. So when you're writing with people, I'm guessing then that if you're just writing, you divorce yourself from the role of audio engineer. If uh, you don't, if you if that's not your job, you just totally just distance yourself from that, or is it always there? Yeah, in this day and age, um, since just this style of music and production um, that I do, it seems like a lot of people I don't know it always just seems like you get farther if you can do everything so I, mm -hmm. I always find myself like it's like well who's gonna mix it it's like well I mean I guess I I can't I can mix so I guess I'll mix it it's like <laughs> well who's gonna track the vocals you see what I'm saying it's like I can do it <laughs> yeah exactly so 
you know, back in the old days, it was like, okay. And then it's still in the rock, like the, a band day, but you know, with, when it's just like an artist and like a beat maker, it's like, you know, back in the old days, you'd be like, all right, cool. We need a vocal engineer. Then we need a mixing engineer and a mastering engineer. But these artists coming out now have these, have these managers and no budgets. And they'd rather just put their artists in with one dude that can just do it all, even if it's not, you know, perfect at first. So I always find myself like kind of like assuming every single role in every on all in the whole process. Well, I think you're seeing that in at least metal too, where mixing engineers now regularly master their own stuff and producers now regularly write and play almost everything for the bands they record. Like I feel like there's a a big parallel right there. And you're I feel like you coming from issues, probably you didn't experience that quite as much because you guys can actually uh, play your shit and and write your shit. But um, I feel like that that whole thing where the uh, the producer is a part of the of everything is becoming more and more how metal and heavy productions are done. And also a lot of it has to do with budget like People just don't want to spring the extra fifteen hundred or two grand for an outside mastering engineer. They just won't do it sometimes. So, got to know how to do it. Sadly, <laughs> I always like getting a, an outside mastering engineer. I prefer it. So, on the writing front, how often do you write? And uh, do how do you get around? Uh, I guess repeating yourself or sounding stale and what are your methods for that? Are you like one of those dudes who's like up at nine every morning and writing by 10, 10 to two, you know, like those guys that are like for the first part of my day, no matter what's going on in my life, I'm going to write for three or four hours and then fucking Coke and hookers. The rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not that uh, calculated, but yeah, I, actually my main thing is cause that is a struggle for anybody who writes. Um, it's just like, you know, getting stale and falling into habit, things like that. You know, there's a few methods that, that I have, but the main method is just switching it up. Whatever it is, whatever that means is switching it up. How you create, where you create, what time you create, who you create with. Anything can be, any, if it can be changed, change it. Just try it a different way and you'll get to, at least for me, you'll get to a different destination. And also is learning. Like uh, just, you know, sometimes I'll just learn a new song, a new progression, and that'll open my eyes up to... Um, some new harmony. I'll make a new sound, a new synth patch, and just the sound will inspire me. And then the third thing I do is just listen. Like I'm so about listening to music and trying to find new music. And, you know, I have such a big wide range of things that I like and phases that I've gone through. You know what I'm saying? I've been through a huge, like acoustic folk phase, love like underground hip hop. I went through a, a super big death metal and like hardcore phase and like just going through all these things uh, it has just like kind of like widened my palette more and more every new band that I like or artist that I like and then I just try to uh, just soak it in and, and usually when I get down to the nitty gritty something new comes out of me that I didn't know was there you know absolutely I echo the learning something new I find that it's not not just with writing music like uh if i'm trying to come up with something for business even um or mixing like i feel like i'm getting stale with mixing i feel like just learning something new 
It's not that the thing that I learned right then and there is going to immediately affect what I'm doing in that, like, say I learn a new technique. That technique might not make it onto whatever I'm working on later that day or the next day. It's just that something triggers in the brain that, like, restarts the creativity. Or I've heard a lot of people say that creativity is kind of like willpower and that it's a, it's a depreciating asset and uh, you need to renew it through through sleep and through new information. So you only get X amount per day or per, you know, per period of time. And uh, you have to actively uh, let it regenerate. So I find that by learning something, somehow that kind of just like rocket boosts it for Absolutely. me. Absolutely. That's the craziest. Yeah. What you just said. That's pretty crazy. I'm like thinking about it. <laughs> it makes sense though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Totally does. Like, uh, you know, that point where you're writing something or you're just doing something creative and you're feeling it into it. It's like time disappears. You're going for it and then it's done. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just brain not functioning anymore yeah exactly so when you get to that point what do you do do you stop or do you try to push through it depends um i i i always feel like you know forcing something is is bad and it can lead to results that you're not really stoked on but um sometimes i just need a break sometimes if i feel like no no i can't figure this out you know i'll power through it but I, you know, I guess it just really depends on the situation. Um, I, I think that, you know, especially when you're on a time crunch and you're trying to get something done, you know, it's always good to try to push through. But if you just got to be real with yourself, it's just if it's just not coming, then it's like then it's like move on. Um, but if you feel, still feel energized, you know, a lot of times it's, it's like, OK, I just can't work on this idea. Sometimes I'll move to a different idea. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times ideas just need space. Uh, they need either a, a night or a day. Uh, to come back and, you know, that'll help. But yeah, I guess it just all depends. I feel like I encounter this when tracking drummers a lot, for instance, because, you know, you're dealing with the how focused they can be, but also how tired they are. And um, I've noticed that, like, when I'm tracking a drummer, that when they get to this point where they're not nailing something and they've gotten past their peak physically... Typically, you know, if they're a good drummer or a pro drummer, they're going to want to keep going because the same mentality that makes them a good drummer is what makes, you know, includes not quitting. So it's like you're dealing with a personality type who has it ingrained that they will not quit, like a soldier or something. So, you know, they'll go till five in the morning if you tell them to just keep going. But that doesn't mean the takes are going to get better. In fact, they're probably just going to get worse and worse and worse. So I typically, when I get to that point with other people, I'll cut the session off and not push through because typically I've noticed that one night of sleep and you can handle that thing that was taking you four hours and like 15 minutes when someone's fresh. So I don't know. I kind of feel like work smarter, not harder is a pretty smart thing to do with, uh, with yeah. music but that's definitely something i had to learn like i i didn't have that at all before i was just like no i must i must <laughs> you know that's interesting and uh i've had like arguments with people about this 
because I also had that when I was younger, like the not stopping and everybody great. I know when they were younger had periods of like 12 to 16 hours a day, every single day, not stopping. And then as they get older, they wisen up and, you know, work when they're feeling it really, really hard and develop techniques to be able to feel it when they're not feeling it and all that. But they typically don't redline themselves. But since everybody great tends to have that in common, that at some point, they did do the 12 to 16 hours a day. Maybe that's part of what it takes to get great. Maybe if they had developed this more moderate approach younger in life, they wouldn't become great. I don't know. What do you yeah, think? That, there's, I think there's some truth to that. I think uh, getting, if I guess if I was to think about it, it would be like just getting the, your, I guess, skill set down. The, the, that's like the really heavy lifting is those long days, those super, super focused. Those, I feel like, you know, I always think of like a jazz player, like a saxophone player, you know what I'm saying? Like he has to run those techniques hundreds of thousands of thousands of times so that when he's creating something now, all he has to do is feel it and his fingers just go. You know what I'm saying? He mm-hmm. doesn't have to like, uh, okay, and then wait, how do you do a B flat? It's like literally it just it goes. But at that point in his life is when he can take his time. And that point is when he can be moderate because, you know, he's already got just the, I guess, the technical side down, I guess. And it's not not to yep. say li- literally technical because, you know, sometimes it's it's just getting a skill of, like you said, you know, having techniques of feeling it when you're not feeling it, this and that, whatever. It's just, I guess, those days and that period is kind of removing all the challenges that'll stand in the way of your creativity, I guess, later in life. So maybe there is some truth to that. I remember that, I was reading an interview with John Petrucci, like in the 90s, I was reading an interview with him and he said that him and their bassist, I think they went to the same high school or something like that, that they had a pact that each of them would go home and practice six hours a day. And so that way, if they saw each other hanging out later with friends they knew that if they saw the other guy there, that he had already done his six hours and they like held themselves to that. And six hours a day is a lot. I mean, I know that some guys are like, you got to do 12, but six highly focused hours over the period of years, you can become the best in the world that way. But uh, I I feel like they probably don't practice six hours a day now. Probably not. And that's made possible by those years of, uh, of being brutal. So I, I kind of feel like you got to do it when you're young. Like, like when, you, if you're in high school and you want to get good at music, you want to do music for a career, stay away from drugs and start practicing now. Because when you get into your twenties, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to feel the same way about it. Life changes, things change no matter what, like, and by the time you're in your thirties, like it's over. Like it's, if you already did the work and you're awesome, then it's not over. But as far as just having your life set up in a way that you could do six hours a day, which is what it takes, it's probably over unless you sold some startup at 25 and have like 20, you know, 20 million in the bank and you can do whatever then. Okay, sure. (laughs) there's always exceptions and I don't want to discourage our older listeners or anything like that. I mean, there's plenty of examples of people who have done great things at any age, but I'm just speaking from environmental factors. When you're in high school 
or early college, those are the years in your life where typically you have the least amount of shit going on that matters. Like, I mean, you have a social life, but I mean, it's not like you have to pay rent, hopefully. Right, right, exactly. And one thing that uh, was a big slap in the face for me also was, especially when you get to 25, when you get to 26, that you're going to meet hundreds of people that spent the time that you didn't practicing there. So all of a sudden you're going to find yourself in a huge community of people that are insanely better than you. If you, if you didn't practice, you know what I'm saying? So, and that's something I guess I didn't realize because I mean, I've tried my hand in many, many things and like many different instruments and this and that. And when I got to that point, I was like, wow, like this thing that I didn't really, really focus on, like these people did. And I can't believe how good they are (laughs) already. I I was very, very fortunate growing up because my dad's a symphony conductor and he's pretty well known. And so he was always doing concerts with some of the best soloists in the world. Like, and so oftentimes they'd come to the house just to practice on his piano or they'd come over to rehearse. And so I just kind of grew up around these great musicians and they pounded that into my head from the time I was young that like, if you don't do this now, you're going to be 19 and motherfuckers that like did do it are going to pass you. So don't be a loser, like practice, practice, practice. And, uh, I'm really, really glad that that happened. Yeah. So production is in my opinion, bigger than it's ever been. It's different in that it's not like, uh, you know, it's not a big studio thing like it used to be. I mean, they still exist, but as we know, their numbers are dwindling. But production for like the uh, quote unquote common person is now bigger than ever and it's only growing. And in that, you do have some market saturation. But in my opinion, even though there's market saturation, there's plenty of opportunity for people to develop a career. Do you have any advice for people starting out on? how to go about developing a production career and actually standing out? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, for me, it was, uh, it was something where I had to figure out, I guess, back to the strengths, just kind of figure out what in this big world of production, because it's so wide right now that, that I really excelled at, um, and what I wanted to do. Um, and I, you know, a lot of ways I'm still figuring it out, but you know, I mean, because there's everything from recording bands to uh, to creating jingles to create to making hip hop beats, and this this all falls under an umbrella, but they're all like I guess focused things. I guess I guess it really just depends on the focus that you choose and that you're passionate about, and whatever that is, and it may change uh, just to. I guess just get your feet wet um, and start start any way you can. Like, I think, you know, when I was first kind of doing this, or I guess not when I was first, first doing it, but when I was kind of getting more into like metal and like recording bands and stuff, uh, I started doing a uh, recording service out of my garage. And I used to record bands for like $50, $50 a song, which I'm sure like all of us producers have done at some point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and uh, I, I just even though it was small bands and this and that, it was, I can't tell you how much I learned in those years and how, like how much better it made me. And it was just, you know, cause they were just kids in a band and I was just a kid with a computer and it was like, we were both learning, I guess. And that blossomed into a bunch of other things, I guess. And that was like, I guess what 
built my my skill set. And I think, you know, back to what we were talking about earlier, earlier, if the combination of that building relationships, you know, one week it's this band in two years, it's a band, it's your first band on a label, um, you know, and you smash that out of the park and then another band asks you, it's literally just a combination, I guess, of just building that skill set and correctly building those um, relationships. And if it calls for it, if it's not a band thing, if you're trying to make beats and things like that, if it calls for it, it's also a combination of your location, just being um, where the work is. And for me, it was LA because LA is a place where nobody can get an internship and claw his way to a publishing deal (laughs) like I did in six years. You know what I'm saying? I like that you say claw because well, the, the reason I, I'm glad you said that is because people look at the end result, right? They look at you when you're already there, and it's and if they weren't there for the struggle, then sometimes it's hard for them to understand what you did to get there and what it actually takes. And it's it's important for people to know that in general, your success stories in music aren't like the Pearl Jam story where they got signed to a huge deal within six months of being a band and then became the biggest band in the world. Like, and I'm sure there's a lot more to the story than that. Like they had a previous band, the singer died. Like, you know, there's a whole backstory, but still like those winning the lottery stories, you know, I mean, they're like winning the lottery. It just, someone wins the lottery, but it's probably not going to yeah, be you. It's just not linear. Like it's, yeah, it's exactly. not a linear line. You're going to have ups and downs, things and that. I've met so many people that were signed to huge deals for like a year, then dropped. And then they reinvented themselves and they they came back as something else, even bigger. It's like, it's literally just um, something like I said before, it's kind of just getting in where you fit in, where you fit in and just taking every op, every opportunity and setback and realizing how to reposition and just kind of move forward, I guess. I call it pivoting. You know, I'm on my third career right now and in music, and this one's bigger than the other two were. The first one was a signed band on Roadrunner. That was cool while it lasted. Then it was producing and engineering and assisting on pretty big metal records, and that was cool. And now it's this whole entrepreneurial online thing that been doing and it's bigger than the other two put together and it's taken a lot of like ups and downs figuring out like where I fit in what I'm good at what people appreciate for me what I'm passionate about and what I'm willing to devote my time to and redefining myself every step of the way and I see that in a lot of other people who have done well. It's like you said, maybe band one didn't work out for them or the first record deal. That doesn't mean they have to quit. That just means they have to figure out where they fit in. There's a lot of factors outside of your control. For instance, if you're an artist and you get that big deal and you have a hit even, maybe you're that fortunate, maybe that's all you got because your style of music only jived with the collective consciousness for that period of time and that's not to say that you're not a good artist or something that's you can't control what the outside world thinks or if you're a producer who you know helps usher in a trend in heavy music for instance taking it back to what our audience is into and you produce some bands that change the the scene like maybe your snare sound becomes the the thing that all the bands want but the crowd decides they don't like it after two years it doesn't mean you're not a good producer or mixer it just means that 
people, society changed what they were into. And you got, you can either cry about it or you can uh, redefine yourself and keep moving. So we've got some questions here from our crowd for you, if you don't mind answering a few of them. Yeah, no, no. Cool. So here's one from Sean Dorian. He said, what was the production process like on Headspace? How do you know when enough is enough when adding elements to a song? Um, yeah, so uh, I guess that's, that is the biggest challenge and I guess the biggest learning uh, curve that Issues has been as a band. Um, and it started, you know, I started learning from the first record to to now um, and I'll continue to learn. But um, yeah, I guess, and you know, there's there are songs, there are times where, you know, I've, I sent stems to Chris and I got the mix back and I was like, yo, mute A, B and C because it just distracts, you know what I'm saying? I guess what I'm always listening for is what's the point of the part and what am I supposed to be listening to? What am I supposed to be focusing on? And is whatever I've added or whoever's added augmenting this part or distracting from this part? And if it's the latter, then like it doesn't need to be there. And I found that a big thing is not getting attached like to any parts, sections, lines, like if, if it's, if it's uh, diminishing the song, like just let it go because you, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is the song good. I completely agree. So Jake Booth is asking, it's often said that before beginning any creative project, there should be a vision in mind at the end product. Can you describe for us what the vision might consist of in your mind? For example, does it consist of feelings, emotions, or maybe more technical things such as melodies and rhythms? Yeah, so I guess I... I visualize vision and uh, things like that differently in different projects and specifically with the issue stuff. Uh, when we first started, I guess my vision for the band and, you know, this was kind of decided with AJ and Tyler because we were kind of the three that started the sound was, it, I guess it was pretty technical. Um, it was just like, so we're going to be a metalcore band. So we're going to have heavy parts melodic parts um, and and like choruses. So it's like, okay, the choruses have to be all the way catchy and legitimately good chor- like pop choruses. Mm-hmm. The melodic parts should come from bands that I think do melodic parts well and creatively. And at that time, we were listening to a lot of melodic hardcore. So it was like TGI, Gideon, um, Adalia, things like that. And the heavy parts, I just wanted to be groovy. I was listening to a lot of Sixth, Periphery, Meshuggah, you know, Gideon also super groovy band. And I guess I was just like, okay, how can we bastardize these three elements into a band and make every single, I guess, element of those things legitimate? Not like, oh yeah, this is a kind of like a heavy part. No, this is going to be legitimately like heavy part. And this course is going to be legitimately like amazing. You know what I'm saying? Mission accomplished. Oh, thank you. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that was the first thing that I noticed was um, when I heard it that, the legitimacy is why I was like, all right, Finn, I think you're right about this band. And it's not the genre I listen to, but like you can spot authentic. No matter what you listen to, you can spot authentic. It was like, it's not some band who listens to pop trying to do heavy and failing or some band that's all heavy trying to do clean and failing. Like this is actually 
the, right on for every every direction it I appreciate goes. That. So uh, Andy Sanchez is asking, going off of the previous question, do you find yourself writing songs just to write them, such as finding random melodies and whatnot, or do you have an idea then work off that? So yeah, I guess sometimes we'll start uh, with kind of a straight idea, uh, like, oh, what if we did like this type of thing? Um, and then other times we just, something will just inspire us and it'll blossom into something and we don't know where it's going, but it is just blossoming. But yeah. So for example, like for examples of that is like the realist um, is, you know, the first single from um, headspace and has like kind of like some funky chords and things like that. And that was all inspired from a Guthrie Govan video that I saw uh, after I discovered who he was at NAM. I know I'm late. But this past God, he's good. Yeah, he's amazing. So two years ago, not this last name, but the one before that, I didn't know who he was. Uh, but I saw, you know, him walking around at Nam and everyone talking about him, or whatever. So I like looked him up, saw an amazing video that night. Worked out this riff. I'm not a good guitar player, but like I can edit. So I worked out this riff, showed it to my brother. My brother can actually play guitar. He made it into another riff, or he like flushed it out, I guess, and then. We were just like, oh, what if this was just like a funk metal song? And it like created that sound. And we kind of went to the the finish line with that idea. It all came from like this random inspiration. And then other times, you know, like th there's a song Princeton Ave on our first record. I was literally sitting in church with my mom and this breakdown came into my head. And I like just was like, break, like doing this. Yeah. Um, and then as soon as I left church, I like went home and like started it. And I didn't know where Prince Nav was going. And at the end, it was just this weird bastardization of like heavy and Drake stuff. I don't know. It was weird. <laughs> so Seth Bunsen is asking, asking why he's so cute. <laughs> tell, tell Seth I was born like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's no, no work required. So uh, Clark Jones is asking, what does your songwriting process look like? I guess that's a pretty broad question. Um, yeah. Yeah, I wish he could have been a little bit more general i mean not a little bit less general sorry it's it is different like I, I like i keep saying and kind of like the trend i guess i'm saying is every single time i write something i try to do it differently yeah and i feel like you've given enough insights into different ways that you write to where that question is pretty much answered all right alex kane is asking what are your top three plugins top three that's it <laughs> let's see Top three plugins. Okay, first one is Serum. I think it's a, an amazing synthesizer and super powerful sounding. And I really like analog sounding stuff. So Serum is, in my opinion, the best analog, like the, the most analog I can get something sounding. So uh, I love Serum. Um, also, I'm trying to think what else I use all the time. Um, oh, Transient Master by uh, Native Instruments use that on drums on pretty much every single is that a multi-band one oh uh, no it's literally just like two knobs it looks just like the spl one but it's made by native instruments i'm gonna send you uh, a multi-band one that we make at jst if you have never used this called oh, transify yeah. it's it's the same type of thing except multi-band dude that sounds sick i would love to try that because I, I, I collect these. I have the Transmod, the SPL Trans Designer, the Transient. I got... Dude, tra Transient Designers are so cool. <laughs> yeah, dude. So, yeah, definitely one of my favorites there. And the last one is the Pro-L. I just love the, the Pro-L. 
favorite limiter? Dude, I feel like Fab Filter plugins look like a nice spot. <laughs> yeah. Like they're so relaxing oh, yeah. to look at. Especially the EQ. Yeah, it's just you can just look at it all day. <laughs> it just looks great. So it sounds great too, but so Josh Ballard said, How is Headspace so perfect? And on a serious note, how does he determine what elements to add to songs to give them that issues flavor? Yeah, it's man. A tough one. Um, it's really tough. I mean, me personally, like my job as far as, well, not my only job, but like I guess when I was a member of the band, my role as my instrument, I guess, was the production and, and synths and stuff. And that's always really, really hard because I spend so much time in the trenches with AJ and Sky cra- writing the songs and like crafting every single part that when it's done, I'm just like, I already like it. It's like, oh, what the hell, like, should I add on to it? But um, I guess I just always try to do things that, like I said earlier, just augment each part and augment um, the feeling. And, you know, obviously my flavor is like, comes from old school soul and stuff. And like, like I really like Gap Band. So like those types of synths and, and uh, you know, uh, like Dr. Dre stuff. And I just like, you know, super soulful synths and stuff. So I guess that shines through, but I always make, try to make it augment every single part and it just comes out sounding like issues when all of us, I guess, are involved in it. You know, I feel like that's something that needs to be noted about, you know, when you like a band and you like their style, oftentimes their style isn't something that the artist needs to think about because it's them, you know, it's, it's their own. That's why that person is in the band. And you that's why you like it. It's because you like their unique take on music. So it's not like it's it's not like George Harrison had to think about what George Harrison leads are supposed right, to right. sound like, right? Or at least I don't think that's how <laughs> yeah, it works. Exactly. I mean I, I don't think that Paul McCartney sat there thinking about, well, this bass line should be more Paul McCartney. <laughs> yeah. May, maybe now he does, I don't know. But I just I feel like um what makes an artist great or part of what makes an artist greater part of what draws people to them is their unique take on their art so it's not it's not really a choice yeah exactly and i think when people start bands and do bands is to just run run as far away as you can from being a clone like don't ever clone a band because yep. There's, there's already that band and they do it better than you. Like, unfortunately, like you don't know how, like you don't, I can't describe how badly I want to be in Meshuga. Like I want to be in Meshuga so That's badly. who I was. That's, that's exactly who I was. Like I want to be in Meshuga so bad, but like, I just will never be, I'll never be Meshuga. You and so many other people too. It's just, you know, they come on and it's like, yeah, they're the best. Dude, absolutely. Like, there is nobody better. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy to me how how much better they are than their imitators. Though there are bands who have uh, taken the influence and done other things mm-hmm. that are really cool. But I'm a, I'm a huge mm-hmm. Korn fan, and not just the first album, like a lot of people say. Uh, I'm just a huge Korn fan for... I feel like they've been... Even if their later albums don't aren't as good from start to finish, they're still great songs from every era. And it's the same sort of thing. It's like you think about all the bands that tried to be corn that didn't even didn't even come close. It's just you will never be that. So why don't you try to 
why don't you be sitting on that stack? Because yeah, because corn already got it, got the uh, the market cornered on uh, the <laughs> corn thing. So um, Ty, thank you so much for coming on. It's great talking to you. Really, really appreciate it. And thanks for sharing and being so open. Uh, I know that the uh, the listeners will love this one. Sick. I, I, I do. It's my pleasure. I hope. I hope anybody listening enjoyed it yeah hope so too i know they will so i'm not even worried about it so thanks again dude the unstoppable recording machine podcast is brought to you by drumforge drumforge is a forward-thinking developer of audio tools and software for musicians and producers alike founded on the idea that great drum sound should be obtainable for everyone we focus on your originality drumforge it's your sound go to drumforge.com for more info to ask us questions make suggestions and interact Visit nailthemix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.